Okay, go ye kids. Go ye, all right. And the rest of us, let's take our outlines. If you need one, wave a hand there. We'll have Brother Brett pass one out. Oh, bless you, brother. Uh, this windmill needs water to run. Thank you. And uh, let's uh, um, take our Bibles and just open to the book of Revelation. This was a question that was asked. Those little papers on the visitor table, uh, they will generate a response, either personally or uh, from the pulpit. And uh, the question was basically... Um, Can you give us a timeline that will help make a little more sense out of the book of Revelation? And so uh, I got the question actually this morning and that just wouldn't get out of my mind. So I just sat down and put put this together. And so what we're going to do is we are going to run through the book of Revelation in one service here and... uh, 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 try to uh, give us a timeline, not not for the entire Bible, but for the book of Revelation and for the future here. It is laid out in the book of Revelation. We start with uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, And he sent and signify it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw. So, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, John is introducing himself. This is not the revelation of John. Uh, The word revelation means revealing. And there are many things that we cannot know except that God reveal them to us. Uh, You could not know how to be saved except for the fact that God tells you in the Bible. We know that there is a God. Read Revelation chapter 1. We're not, I mean, Romans chapter 1. We're not going to go there tonight, but. You look up into the sky. Uh, One of the things that I just enjoyed so much is we had several uh, very clear nights while we were up there in Vermont and there were no city lights and uh, no street lights and it was dark. Uh, But you could see, I could see plainly just standing there, uh, Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and uh, many of the constellations and and, uh, even... Uh, on the limited uh, 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 cell signal that I had, downloaded one of those apps on my phone so I could point it in the sky and it would tell you uh, the names of the stars and uh, the different constellations and all of those things you were supposed to have learned in school. And uh, it was, you, you can't look at those things and not know there is a God. You have to purpose in your heart to push God out of your understanding. All you have to do is look up into the sky. Amen? And uh, John is saying, excuse me here. All this rain is uh, working on my sinuses, but it says... That John is giving 
to us, explaining to us what he saw. Now, we do not know what he saw except for the word pictures that John paints. And one of the problems of understanding the book of Revelation is the fact that John was living in the first century. This book was written somewhere between one, uh, 95 and 105 A.D. That's basically the time window that the quote-unquote scholars, people who know these things, give us. There were no cars, no airplanes. Uh, the most formidable weapon of battle in, in this day and time was a chariot. There were no guns, no cannons, no artillery, uh, no explosives, none of these things that, that we know about today. And yet, John may have seen an image of these things. How would you describe them? Uh, he describes a mountain of burning fire falling upon the waters. Well, maybe he was describing a nuclear explosion. How many of you have ever seen a picture uh, of an atomic bomb going off? I mean, they, they play that film all the time, anywhere you go, history, that wise. Boy, that's a pretty simple description of an atomic explosion. Is it not a mountain of burning fire falling on the earth? Uh, does God need atomic weapons to get done what he talks about in the book of Revelation? Absolutely not. Yet, could God use things that we know about today? Uh, he talks about in the book of Revelation of the two witnesses laying on the streets in the city of Jerusalem and all the world behold them. Now, how in the world, even if you lived a hundred years ago, would you understand that? Does anybody have any problem understanding that something could happen in Jerusalem and everyone in the world could be an eyewitness of that in real time? Uh, it's called the Internet. Al Gore invented... I'm sorry. Uh, no, he did not. Uh, the, uh, we have many things today that will help... Uh, that could be used to explain some of the things in the Bible. There is nothing that will happen in the book of Revelation that are beyond our uh, ability to understand how these things could happen. A hundred years ago, that was not so. You, you'd have no clue how, as to how these things could be fulfilled. And so we're going to just walk through the book of Revelation, but we need to be reminded it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is about Jesus. Chapter 1 happens between 95 and 105 A.D. There's an island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. John was exiled. He was put out of... They could not stop him witnessing and preaching, and teaching about Jesus. So what they did was they rode him out to an island in the middle of the sea, and they left him there. Now, I, I love what the Bible says here. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom of the patience 
in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that was called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the verse. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, John did not have church to go to because he was the only living inhabitant of the island of Patmos. So what did he do on Sunday? He was in the Spirit. He was worshiping God. Now, Sunday should not be the only day of worship. It is the time we get together as a church. And, by the way, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 16. That was the common practice of the church to assemble on the first day of the week. Uh, I had a guy, I think I've used this hope not, not too many times, but Seventh-day Adventist, he says, you worship on Sunday, the day of the sun god. And I said, and you claim that we should worship on Saturday, the day of the, noon, uh, of the moon god, Saturn, the, the god of night. Uh, you tell me who's better. I said, that, uh, we didn't name the day, sir. We worship on the first day of the week because it's the day Jesus arose again from the dead. The seventh day of the week was never a day of worship. It was a day of, there we go, it's the day of rest, not the day of worship. We're supposed to worship God every day. So, here we have John, and Jesus appears to John, and through various means, he allows John to see and hear and to record the events that are put into the book of Revelation. And so, we start here in chapter, uh, let's just get verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars that thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, the the word angel simply means messenger. Uh, God does not have a guardian angel over every church. What he has is a preacher. The preacher is the messenger. And so it's talking about these letters are not addressed to the individuals in the church, though each letter comes with a... Uh, a statement, a challenge to hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, and yet the letter is addressed to the pastor because the pastor is supposed to leave the church. So chapters 2 and 3 are what we call the church age. Now, some people have gone through and they've tried to say, well, the first hundred years was the church at Ephesus, and then the next so many centuries was this church, and divided up into church ages. Um, I have only one problem with that, and that is simply, every one that I've ever read after that has done this comes up with a different set of dates. If it were... As simple as that, if that is actually what Jesus was trying to say here, that there are seven different church ages inside the church age, uh, the dates would be consistent. There would be something that we could 
look at. But since everybody comes up with all kinds of different dates, and since everything that Jesus wrote to each church is still going on today, could we not take that Jesus picked out of all of the churches that were in existence when the time was written, seven real churches to typify or symbolize what goes on in the true church of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand something. The term is, you, he talks to the church of Ephesus and he said, if you don't repent, I'm going to take your candlestick away. The candlestick was a church. And so really what we ought to say is the, the difference between a true church and a false church is a true church is a candlestick church. If that church loses its candles because Jesus takes them away, it's no longer a true church. And so we have a lot of places out there called churches that never have been a candlestick church. Because the emphasis is here, an organic connection to the Word of God as preached through His apostles. That is our heritage. We don't trace our heritage based upon baptisms or ordinations. We do not trace our history in our name. We trace our history in an agreement with the Word of God. Now, how far back does that responsibility go? Well, I'll tell you how far back I believe it goes. In uh, 1986, I graduated Bible college and I became a member of the Cleveland Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio. You know, one thing I understood about the Cleveland Baptist Church and the reason I joined that church is because it was a Bible-preaching, Bible-living church. It, they had not compromised. They're given in to the world. And, and its pastor at that time, Roy Thompson, had pastored the church since 1958. And... Uh, he, he was faithful to the Word of God until God took him home in 1995. He turned the pastor of the church over to uh, Pastor Kevin Folger, who just recently turned the pastor of the church, or will in the next few months, I'm not sure exactly the timeline here, uh, turned the pastor over to his son, Pete Folger. And... Uh, if I remember right, the year we got married, I taught school there, and Pete was in my fifth grade music class. And uh, now he's going to be the pastor of the church. It's, a, uh, it's an amazing thing. But you see, I found a good church, and I was sent out from and ordained from a good church. That's where my responsibility stops. I don't need to go back and check on Brother Thompson's ordination and and Pastor uh, Billington's ordination that ordained Pastor Thompson, and I have no idea, not even a clue. All I know is that Dallas Billington came from Kentucky in the 1920s and started the Akron Baptist Temple. You know what? I don't need to know anymore. Because what I need to know is that I was a member of a good church. They sent me out, and now we're sending people out of Open Door Bible Baptist Church. 
That is our heritage. It's connected to the Word of God. The church age began when Jesus resurrected from the dead. The church was empowered on the day of Pentecost. But the church existed before the day of Pentecost. The church was started personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 16, he said, I will build my church. Why do you make a big deal about that? Because we have this uh, fellow coming along in uh, 1534 named Martin Luther who said, the church of Jesus has become so corrupt that I've had to start my own. The Lutheran church, not named after Jesus Christ, but named after Martin Luther. Why? Because it follows the distinctive and unique doctrines of a man named Martin Luther who died, baptized as a Catholic, and ordained, well, they revoked his ordination as a Catholic priest. Uh, They excommunicated him from the church. And, of course, he had a few kind things, well, very unkind things, actually, to say about the Pope and called him Antichrist and all of these things. And they went back and forth. And the only thing that kept Martin Luther alive was a fellow called the Elector of Hanover, who happened to have one of the largest armies in Europe, and the Pope didn't want to fight a war. And so they decided to live and let live. And that's, But that's not Church of Jesus. Never has been. Never will be, never could be. The same is true of all Protestant churches. The same is true of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church from which it sprang. These churches were founded by men. Where if we go back in the history of the Orthodox Church far enough, you know what? There was still a church at Ephesus in 500 A.D., And from what we understand, there were still some churches that are listed here in these seven letters that were still preaching the gospel in 314 when Constantine became the de facto head of the, quote-unquote, what we should call the pseudo-Christian church. See, the word orthodox means uh, standard tradition. But I want to challenge you, the Orthodox Church is an innovation, is a change from what the Bible said. Because the churches of the Orthodox Church answered to Constantine at the church councils. After him, there's a line of popes. And if you think anybody was running around... Uh, in 250 A.D. or 285 during the reign of Diocletian, one of the most uh, persecuting emperors that ever lived, he would send the Roman legions in and wipe out entire areas, kill every living thing, genocide, trying to stamp out the Christians. Do you think during those years somebody's saying, I'm the Pope of the Catholic Church and I'm here in Rome to tell you what to do, Mr. Emperor? No. Uh, my favorite little line is, he had less life expectancy than a Corvette in New York City in 1975. Uh, that was your first stoplight. As soon as you stopped, they came out of the network and stripped it down. Uh, 
You know, the Pope, uh, there's nobody running around in charge of anything before Constantine because they would have been murdered by the Roman soldiers and the government. So, we have the church age that begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and continues until an event that we call the rapture. We don't know when that is. Jesus said, no man knoweth the day nor the hour. Now, I've met some preachers, Baptist preachers, that have actually set dates. Uh, and guess what? Every one of them was wrong. Jesus said, no man knows. So, if you set a date, I can promise you one thing. It's not going to be that date. <laughs> we do not know when the Lord is coming back, but here's what we're told, is we need to be ready. Did you read the letters to the churches? We can't take time to read all seven letters but there are commands, there are directions, there are things that the churches are supposed to do, things they are not supposed to do. And just to summarize this, number one is you're supposed to love the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are not to join with the world, you, you are not to uh, accept worldly practices, there is not to be a difference between the clergy and the laity, this is one of the main points of the Orthodox Catholic system is that there is this lowly mass of ignorant, uh, barely saved people and there's this special line of priests, of very uh, educated, of special people that can understand the Bible. No one else can. That's doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's not Bible. And we're not to join the world. That's the Laodicean church. These are the simple principles that we are to follow. This is the time that we are in. We are still in the church age. We are waiting for the rapture when Jesus removes the church from the world. Why is that important? Well, as we read through the book of Revelation, we find out that God is going to give this Antichrist power, and he is going to wear out the saints of God. Now, there's only one problem. In Matthew chapter 16, it says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. If the church is there during the time of Antichrist, now we have a contradiction in Scripture. If the church is removed, now we have no contradiction at all. God is going to give the Antichrist a short period of seven years of unlimited power. The world is finally going to get what they want. Uh, what was that guy's name that just croaked, uh, died here a little while ago? Um, I always want to call him Willy Wonka. Um, but uh, he, Stephen Hawking's. And, uh, I mean, uh, that, that gentleman was one of the most blasphemous, God-hating men that has ever lived. Every breath, he was trying to derail God and, and take people's faith out of God and put it in himself and other things. Well, I'll tell you, he's met his reward. 
And it is not a pleasant one, I promise you that. And it will be eternal. He'll never get out. He is under the interdiction of God's judgment. You see, we are waiting for Jesus to come and get his church. Then we get to Revelation 4 and 5. Now, I like this, and I, I don't know why people don't see this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, the door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. Now, Am I doing uh, extra-biblical suggestion to say that this is talking about the rapture of the church? Is there anybody that does not see that? The voice of the trumpet, the trump of the, uh, the last trump, the voice of the archangel. Uh, we're going to be called up out of this earth. We're going to be taken up to heaven. That is the rapture of the church. That could happen before we finish this service. It could happen... A thousand years from tonight. Now, I don't believe it's going to happen a thousand years from tonight. But that's what the Apostle Paul said over 1,800 years ago. So, we're going to let that in God's hands. Amen? We don't know when he's coming. That is the next event. Revelation 4 and 5 give us a little peek into heaven. That's where we go. When the rapture sounds, we'll forever be with the Lord. The best we understand, this is when we as believers in Christ are going to be judged for our works. The rewards are going to be handed out because we get to Revelation chapter 19 and the armies of heaven and the believers in Christ are coming after him and they're arrayed in linen, fine and white, which is the righteousness of the saints. So the rewards have been passed out by the time we get to the end of the tribulation period. This is what we're going to be doing in heaven while all these terrible things are happening on earth. And so uh, we get down to Revelation 4 and 5. And, and Revelation 5 is the preeminence of Christ. Uh, John kind of misses it here. He, he thinks they're actually looking for something they've lost in heaven. And uh, the thing is, they haven't lost anything. They know exactly what they're looking for. But what they're doing is they are proving, once again, that there is none like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is none to be compared. Searching the deepest pockets of, of the depths of the sea to the outer reaches of outer space. Only one lion of the tribe of Judah who is worthy to take that book out of the hand of him that sits upon the throne. Now things get a little more complex. Chapters 6, 7, up to verse 1 of chapter 8 is the seven seals judgment. Now, in those days, they would take a book like this that, that was 
uh, a, a private message and they would seal it. They would wrap it around with a piece of leather and then they would melt some kind of wax. That was their main glue at that point was paraffin and, and they would seal that. And uh, if you were anybody of importance, you would have a ring or a signet or something engraved and you would stamp it into the hot wax and put your imprint on that. Rome, uh, when Jesus' tomb was sealed, they would have taken probably a leather strap of some kind. Who, who knows how wide it was, an inch or uh, maybe six inches wide. We don't know. And they would have wrapped it around that stone and then they would have taken some uh, melted uh, wax or some other type of resinous substance like that. They would have poured it over and the Roman guard would have had an engraved seal with the crest of Rome on it and he would have stamped it into that substance. So all they could see said, this seal has the power and authority of Rome. Do you know that Rome waged wars over less than breaking a Roman seal? They, they were very serious about themselves. Uh, they did not breach any type of uh, of reproach or uh, 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 rebellion against their statement. When they sealed something and the scribes and the Pharisees were going there, no one is going to break that Roman seal. <laughs> Until the angel descended out of heaven and picked up that 5,000 pound stone that was over Jesus' tomb and says, and he rolled it away. I would just love to see that, wouldn't you? And uh, the Roman guard did what any wise person would do. Played dead. Because that kind of power cannot be fought against. You see, the book was sealed seven times. And every time that Jesus would open one of those seals, a judgment would come. These are the things that happened during the time of the revelation. It is hard for us on this point of unfulfilled prophecy to describe every moment of time, but these first seven seals are primarily in the first half of the tribulation. This goes back, I didn't put the reference in here, to uh, Daniel chapters uh, Daniel chapter 9, where it explains the 70 weeks, the two periods of 1,230 days. Those are the uh, Israel, uh, Jewish year is a 360-day calendar, not a 365 and a quarter as ours is. But the re- how they made it up is they did not get a leap year where they added one day every four years. They had a leap month that was put in every 50 years. And uh, I, I would dare say uh, that God's calendar keeping is probably a little more accurate than ours. Amen? Uh, and so we come here and he has the seven seals. Now the seventh seal, let's go to Revelation chapter 8. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. And I saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So now, the seventh seal, when it is opened, 
becomes a whole new set of seven judgments, the seven trumpets. And each one of these judgments are sounded until we get um, to the chapter 11 and verse 15. It says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, the best that we can understand is that God's judgments during the tribulation period are going to begin very severe and terrible, but they're going to increase in speed and severity. If you've ever been at the blacksmith shop, one of those, anybody demonstrating that, you'll find that he does what we call a, a tip hammer is he will give a little touch where he wants that hammer to fall, and then he gives a big one. And as the metal cools, he hits faster and harder to get the desired effect. And that's what God is going to do with his judgments. It's going to be boom, boom. Then it's going to be ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And when we get to the end, the seventh trumpet, when he sounds, are going to be seven vials. But this seventh trumpet says it's the end. So these seven vile uh, uh, judgments are going to come at the very end of the tribulation. The last three of the vials. Now, if you want to know what a vial is, this is a cup. A vial would be a big jar about this uh, 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 something that the angels would hold. It would be bigger than what we call a mason jar. It would be a large uh, pot of some kind, and these last seven angels will fly through the air and pour out these seven vials upon the earth. The last three are pronounced woes, and the last of the woes is the battle of Armageddon. That's the end. All of these judgments happen in a literal seven-year period, uh, depending on our understanding of the book of Daniel, which may have an addition uh, period of several days at the end of, of that seven years. And so that takes us through Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Revelation chapter 12 is a reference to the birth of Jesus Christ. We're going back and we're getting background information. Revelation chapter 13 is about the Antichrist and the false prophet. Revelation chapter 14 is about God's witness. See, the church will not be on earth during the tribulation period, contrary to popular belief. And so how is God's message going to get out? He's going to have 144,000 Jewish men who have believed Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they're going to be going throughout all the world and witnessing. You're also going to have the two witnesses uh, people say that they're Moses and Elijah. Well, they are like Moses and Elijah. But just as John the Baptist was Elijah of the prophecy in Malachi, so these two men will be like Moses and Elijah, but they will not be physically resurrected Moses and Elijah. They're, they're in heaven. Their work is done. And, and so, uh, and they will be, propagating the gospel. 
Chapters 15 and 16 are the vile judgments ending in, uh, in the battle of Armageddon. The armies of the world are going to be gathered together. The, ar- the number of the men of one army is 200 million. And people laughed at the Bible. And they said, there's no way you can have an army of 200 million men. Well, I believe it was 1964-1965, uh, shortly uh, after I was born, China announced that its National Guard numbered 200 million soldiers. And by the way, China has grown in population exponentially in the last 53, four years. So these numbers are no longer unrealistic, are they? What's in the Bible is going to happen. And these armies are going to march to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the Antichrist. And just as they come down into the Jordan Valley, at the head of the Jordan Valley, uh, Napoleon traveled there. Uh, while with his army, while he was still emperor. And he said, it is the most perfect battlefield in all the world. And so, the armies of the east are going to be there. They're coming to fight the Antichrist. And Jesus is going to show up. And there's going to be a peace treaty between Antichrist and the armies that come against them. And they're all going to join forces. Sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. Do you ever think that maybe those sci-fi movie guys have been reading your Bible? I have a sneaking suspicion, though, that I don't think anybody would ever admit it. But there's a lot more of that stuff that comes based on the Bible than it does on their own imagination. And so, anyway, the Battle of Armageddon, that's where the blood is going to flow to the horse's bridle in a river five feet deep, nearly 120 miles up the Jordan Valley. Just imagine the slaughter. We were at the battlefield of Antietam this summer. We rode down the the bloody lane there. And and they say that the blood of the battle casualties flowed down this sunken road like a, a river, but it was only that deep. These these are terrible. This is what's going to happen during that seven year period of the tribulation. That's where all of these judgments: the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven vials, chapter seventeen through nineteen. Give us the destruction of Babylon, which we believe will happen toward the middle of the revelation, uh, the middle of the tribulation period by the armies of Antichrist. That is religious Babylon. Most believe that that is the city of Rome, but we have no way of knowing that for sure until it happens. We have Revelation chapter 18, the destruction of mystery Babylon, which is the commercial Babylon and, and chapter 19 is describing the physical events during the battle of Armageddon. And that is the end of the tribulation period. Most of this book is concerned with the seven-year period that starts with the rapture of the church and ends with the battle of Armageddon. Seven years. Chapter 20 
The devil's going to be bound for a thousand years and Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. He is going to rule as the son of David from the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years. That's what Adolf Hitler said about his Third Reich. It will last a thousand years. Didn't make twelve, I don't think. Praise God. But Jesus' kingdom is going to last a thousand years. Then Revelation chapters 21 and 22 talk about the new Jerusalem. That's where the streets of gold are and the pearly gates. I'll tell you what. I love that song, He the Pearly Gates Will Open. They're going to be open to those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The new Jerusalem, if we understand correctly, is going to hover over the earth during the tribulation, I mean, during the millennial kingdom. That's where there's going to be no more night. That's where the streets of gold are, the walls of jasper and all the precious stones. That's where the saved will walk and worship God. And the light of the city will be God himself and the Lamb. And then we enter a time period, for lack of a better term, we call it eternity future. A place where there is no time. No more dying. No more tears. We look forward to that. We comfort ourselves at funerals talking about there's coming a day when there will be no more death. No more dying. So the history of the book of Revelation is very simple. John wrote in that short time period there between 95 and 105. The church age is still going on. We have the rapture of the church happen. Then the seven year tribulation. The thousand year rule and reign of Christ. And then comes eternity future. When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord. It's talking about that time from the rapture of the church until the end of the millennial kingdom. Just a little over a thousand and seven years. That's what the Bible means when a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. That's what it's talking about, the day of the Lord. And it's going to last a literal thousand years, thousand and seven years, give or take a little bit. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, and we'll be done in just a few minutes, tells us there's a blessing to those who will read and keep the words of this book. What words are in the book of Revelation that we ought to obey? The letters to the churches. Amen? That's the only thing. There are lessons, there are things that we need to be challenged from. We, we cannot keep many of these things... And we get down to Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. Don't mess with the words of God. If you take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, speaking immediately to the book of Revelation, uh, speaking application-wise to the entire sacred scriptures, God's revelation to mankind, you better be careful messing with the words. You take them away, you're not saved. Does that mean you lose your salvation? Absolutely not. It means only an unsaved person would take away from God's Word. And that's why we shun, we refuse to use any of the modern versions 
in the English language. Because there are words and chapters and things that are completely removed. I actually did this one time. I wish I could remember the references. But uh, the NIV Bible, if you would put in the missing reference into the, the verse search, up came the verse. If you read the text, it wasn't there. I don't know about you, but I call that dishonest. If the verse isn't there, if, if you want to take verse 15 out, then what would be 16 in our King James Bible ought to be verse 15, 14. I mean, 15, 16, 17, and you ought to come up one verse short at the end. What they do with 1 John 5, 7 is they take it out. They split verse 6 in half and renumber the second half of verse 6 as number 7, so they're not missing a verse. That's dishonest, my friend. And don't add to God's Word. That's what Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And what kind of trouble did she get into? Those are the challenges from the book of Revelation. Don't waste your time trying to figure out what God didn't tell you. You know what? He doesn't tell us who the Antichrist is. Don't waste time trying to figure that out. You say, well, uh, Mystery Babylon. Where, where is Mystery Babylon? It's a city that does great things. And there's a lot of people that say maybe New York City might be Mystery Babylon. I don't know. All I know is I'm going to be in heaven when Mystery Babylon is in full operation. So I'm not going to worry about it. How about you? Chapter 10, seven thunders uttered their voices, and God forbade or forbid John to record what the seven thunders uttered. I remember, I can't remember what I was doing, but anyway, I came up, uh, there was something I was looking for, and there was a sermon that said, what the seven thunders uttered. Utter nonsense, my friend. (laughs) Because... God sealed those things. We do not know what they said. Don't try to figure that out. You know what? We need to be faithful to the Lord where He has placed you until Jesus comes. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, you can't pray that prayer if you're living against the Word of God. Because you want them to give you a little more time. If your heart is tied up with the things of this world, you can't pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because you want them to give you a little more time to get some things done. Remember when I was in Bible college, the the real thing to do if you were super spiritual was to quit Bible college and go out and get in the ministry because Jesus was coming back. No, that was super dumb. Bible college was over 30 years ago. Uh, And Jesus still hasn't come back. I'm glad I listened to the wise counsel of of, uh, actually the chancellor of the school. He said, you need to understand something, boys. If Jesus comes back before you finish college, he said, you need to be faithful where the Lord has put you, not where you think you ought to be. That's the story of the book of Revelation. Amen? You see, we need to tell people about Jesus as God gives us utterance. By the way, we ought to be praying about that. 
Reading the book of Revelation ought to put a little urgency in our heart to get that message out to where we live. We do not know when God's alarm clock is going to go off. That's the rapture. That happens in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Then at that moment or shortly thereafter begin the events of the seven-year tribulation. Then we have a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning on earth. Then we have the final judgment of the dead and eternity future. In the new Jerusalem, the city of gold. And by the way, it's not gates that are adorned with pearl. The Bible said it's one pearl for an entire gate. I'm not sure the actual measurement, but it would be bigger than any door in this building. Let's put it that way. Very, I mean, those gates would be roughly, uh, it would have to be 25, 30 feet tall and at least that across. Queen Cleopatra of Egypt financed an entire war with a natural pearl that you could hold in one hand. Think of the value of a pearl 40 foot tall. Let me tell you, God's resources are unlimited. We should remember that as we struggle through this life. Amen? All right, I hope and pray that that did not further confuse you, but give an answer to that question, a timeline of the book of Revelation. We are waiting for the rapture of the church, seven years tribulation, a thousand years rule and reign of Christ, and then we go into eternity future. And all God's people say, let's pray. Dear